Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. API first companies, modern suppliers, or alternative asset classes interest you, this is the episode for you. Today, I have Stephen Cook from Chicago Ventures on the podcast, and we had one of my favorite conversations to date. Stephen's incredibly thoughtful and knowledgeable about the aforementioned topics, and we definitely cover them at length in this episode. Stephen also has one of my favorite paths to venture. He spent time as a professional basketball player in Europe before breaking into VC. And he's a phenomenal source for tips about navigating the waters of getting that first job in VC and how to add value at the junior level. I think listeners are going to learn a ton from this episode. I know I personally did. Steven's definitely a guest that I cannot wait to have back. And with all that said, here's our conversation. Steven Cook, you are live on the air. Welcome to Chicago Capital. Thanks so much for joining me, man. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Good to be here. First things first, I think we're making history here. You are the first new Trier Trevian to join me on Chicago Capital. So it's kind of a historic day. I, I'm, I'm honestly surprised. I feel like new Trier is that massive high school on the north side that everybody in Chicago is from. So I'm, I'm surprised like you haven't crossed paths with at least one Trevian so far, but I'll take it. <laughs> I, I have. It's just, it's been a slow process to let one on the show, you know, just as a Loyola guy, you know, I've just been kind of biding my time waiting to see who should be the first one. You know, I have a high bar. Uh, so, but yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy how many Nutria people, especially I think at Chicago Ventures. I know, I know you guys have a, a big Nutria contingency there, which, you know, we can talk about when we get a little bit more into Chicago Ventures. But first thing I did want to ask about, and correct me if I'm wrong here, a year ago, did you start a newsletter about Chicago tech events that you wanted to highlight right before COVID? Yeah, it was uh, it was tough timing. So I, I started at CV, geez, coming up on a year and a half ago, something like that now. But when I first started, you know, something everybody told me was like, you need to go to every single event. You need to just like get out there, meet as many as people, as many people as possible, just get out in the tech ecosystem and start forming relationships. And like that ultimately compound, you could start like seeing more deals and that's what will ultimately make you successful. And, and so I was, I was going to all these events. I was like talking to a ton of other analysts and associates at other firms who were in similar positions and like I kind of became known as like the go-to guy in the junior VC ecosystem of like, hey, I want to go to some events this week. Where should I go to? What spots do I need to hit? Let me ask Steven. He'll know where to go. And that kind of get, like it got me tinkering with some some different ideas. You know, I thought about starting a newsletter, but I didn't want to be like, you know, another VC starting a newsletter about like stuff that's already well talked about at this point and like just being a part of the echo chamber. And when I thought about like what could actually differentiate my newsletter versus what's what's already out there, I thought, hey, I'm I'm pretty good at this event stuff. Let me let me try my hand in that. And so like spent a ton of time putting together like the first newsletter. I was super selective about what I put on there. I wanted to make sure it was super high quality. Released it, got a ton of positive response. I think I was up to like 200 subscribers on Substack or something like that. And I had sent it out to like maybe 20 people to start, and so it was like clearly resonating. 
tough part was, was that, you know, that first newsletter was, I think, March 2nd or 3rd, right before COVID. And of course, like two weeks later, we all know what happened. Every event for the foreseeable future shut down and, you know, everybody was in their homes for the next year plus. And I didn't want to be that guy that was starting remote or tech enabled events and like that sort of stuff, just because I personally think it's just so saturated at this point. But it was a uh, it was a tough start to the newsletter career, but I've been releasing some other content since then that hopefully people have found helpful. <laughs> Is there a, do you plan on charging that back up once, uh, once things are back to normal? I think so. We'll see. I mean, I, that's, that's one part of the job that I absolutely loved when I first started was just, you know, being out there in the ecosystem and meeting a ton of people. And I think, I think everybody, you know, is kind of itching to get back out there when it's finally safe. And so, I, yeah, I think I think once times do return to normal and and people can start going to events again, I think people will find value in it. So, thanks for the reminder. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to spin that back up when the time is right. Yes, please add me to the mailing list as well. I love the idea. I think it's I think it's an awesome idea. You talked about starting out at CV. Love it if we could rewind a little bit further to you know your background, how you got into venture. I think you have such an interesting sort of path to venture. So, would love to hear it. Yeah. So. Going all the way back, you know, already hinted at it, but grew up in Chicago. I guess you could say Chicago guy through and through and, and always kind of knew I would end up back here, but definitely a winding path in between now and, and when I first grew up in the suburbs. But I'd say for, for the first part of my life, uh, you know, everything really revolved around basketball. You know, I was a, I was a basketball player growing up. Play when I was at Nutra High School, was fortunate enough to get recruited to play in college and, and ended up at, at Princeton out east, which was you know, an unbelievable experience. Playing in college, it was a dream. Got to play in the NCAA tournament. Unfortunately, lost to Notre Dame. And and on top of having a new, new trip contingent at Chicago Ventures, we, are, we also have a Notre Dame contingent. So they still give me some give me some heat about that. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, played in college. And, and when I was in college, had the chance to explore a few different industries. Did an internship in at Aerial Investments here in Chicago, which it's a pretty incredible place started by a guy named John Rogers, who's actually a former Princeton basketball player and and learned a ton from, you know, just being in meetings with him, just being a sponge for how he thought about the world, how the rest of his investment team thought about the world. Love my experience, but I think got it from that, that public markets wasn't really what I wanted to hone in on. And so tried my hand at consulting. My dad had been a, a consultant for a large part of his career. And so maybe he brainwashed me a bit into thinking I should, I should give that a shot. So I was at Accenture one summer and, and really, to be honest, like came out of college, not really knowing exactly what I wanted to hone in on. I think long-term luckily for me, you know, I had the opportunity after playing in college to actually go play basketball overseas for a little while. And uh, so never really had to worry about like, you know, senior year interviews where I was going to end up and, and what industry like was right for me coming straight out of college and all of that. So I had, had these two years overseas, which again, like incredible experience, played in Estonia, believe it or not, my, my first year in a small town called Tartu. Basketball is huge in the Baltics. Not many people know that, but it's like one of the few areas of, of Europe where basketball is actually the biggest sport even over soccer or, or some other sports so it was a fun environment to play in and then played in in the netherlands the following year and oftentimes get the question you know how the heck did you make the transition from playing basketball in europe to, to getting into the vc world this is a very non-obvious transition and one thing i think 
you know, if you talk to anybody who's played a sport overseas, they'll all tell you, you have way too much free time on your hands. You have your practice in the morning, practice in the afternoon, you have game days, of course, but the rest of your time is up to you. And I'm just like, I'm not the the type of person who does well watching Netflix or playing Xbox for eight hours a day. And so try, you know, it, it, when I first got overseas, was just exploring anything and everything. And what that looked like was just reading to people. I would like, cold DM people on Twitter who seem interesting is like, hey, can we hop on the phone or, or call or something like that? So I was exploring everything. And, and what I kept honing in on was sort of the startup world, which ultimately led to the venture capital world, I think, just because a lot of these firms put out really, really good content on how to start companies, how to invest in companies, how to like think about forming your own startup. First, it came from like, hey, I, this seems super cool. I might want to like start my own company one day. Sort of like all kinds of online businesses when I was overseas trying to find some way to, to, to spend my time. And especially my second year, this sort of compounded and got to a point where I was like reading TechCrunch every day. I would re- listen to like a, a How I Built This podcast while I was, I was, um, while I was doing yoga every morning before practice because my body was slowly falling apart. And anyway, came back, you know, fast forward after my second year, got back to Chicago, knew at that point based on, you know, what I'd learned overseas that I was either go work for a startup or try to get into the VC world. And lucky enough, got an intro from one of my good friends, a founder here in Chicago uh, named Stephen Smith, who I grew up with. Went through about two and a half, three months of pretty grueling interviews, but ended up with the with the spot on the other side. <laughs> Went to grade school with Steven. So Did that's, you really? No way. Yeah, it's so funny. It's amazing though, in the Chicago ecosystem, especially how small of a world it can really feel like. I don't know if you feel the same way. I know venture itself is a small world in the in the greater context of things, but Chicago especially. Totally. I, I feel, I always say about Chicago, you know, it's it's the biggest small town in a big city of all time, especially having grown up here, when going to a massive school like Nutra High School. I, I feel like I can't walk two blocks in Chicago without running into somebody I know. And I think, I think that totally carries over into the venture and startup ecosystem too. Like it's a small world. It's It also has a lot of the Midwestern values, it's super collaborative, hardworking, all that stuff. And that's that's what I love about it as a Chicagoan myself. Have you visited? Did you spend any time looking at a New York? Because you went to Princeton, so you're kind of on the East Coast. I would imagine you had friends that kind of moved down to New York or up to New York. Is Princeton above New York or below New York? It's, it's almost directly west, so I don't know. If- All right. <laughs> <laughs> Completely wrong. Okay. Um <laughs> But, you know, did you look at Silicon Valley at all? I mean, or, or did you know you wanted to come back to Chicago? Yeah, I thought about it. I think, you know, I, I talked to firms kind of all over the place, right? Like as one does with, you know, when you're going through the recruiting process earlier in your career. But I think for me, when I started to think about like what my true differentiators would be long term and, and where I wanted to be and how I wanted to position myself is like, a junior person, especially in VC, where I feel like, you know, the positions of analysts and associates are are relatively coveted. And, you know, the people that fill those spots can almost become commoditized in some ways. I think like, you know, being positioned in sort of a, a non-core market outside of San Francisco, New York, or Boston uh, can actually be like a huge differentiator for you. First, I think like, you know, there's not, at the end of the day, there's not that many seed stage firms in Chicago. I think it's growing. I think uh, the ecosystem is growing in a lot of ways, but as someone who is from here, as someone who like understood the city and, you know, when I thought about where I really wanted to plant myself and where, 
you know, I think I could really differentiate myself in the venture world long-term, like becoming known as like a Chicago person, a Midwest person, center of the country person, an investor would carry a lot of weight, I think, you know, as I carried on my career. That might lead a little bit into Chicago Ventures as a whole. Um, we recently had Jackie DeMonte on the show. She was great. She gave us kind of a great overview of CV, but from your perspective, what makes CV stand out to you from other firms, either in the Midwest or on a national scale? You know, what do you think makes CV so special? Yeah, I think I think a huge part of that is, you know, how we've cemented ourselves in the Midwest ecosystem and being one of the first to do so. You know, I think back when the firm started in 2011, 2012, they again, they're really not that many venture firms at the seed stage in the center of the country today. It was especially the case back then. And so, I mean, that was already a differentiator to start and you know how when you think about how that carries over to today, there's not that many firms that have been around for 8, 9, 10 plus years. She's which is where it's at now. Not that many funds that are established. You know, we just announced our third fund. And, you know, that's, I think, a big milestone for a lot of firms that you're... Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Appreciate that. And so I think that's a big milestone. I think that's a big indicator of sort of how we've established ourselves in the ecosystem and being known for the go-to resource for capital at the seed stage, you know, amongst a few other firms in this area. But at the end of the day, you know, when you think about what really differentiates venture firms, it's the people and it's it's the partners to a large extent. You know, I think one of the things that's that's really carried weight for us as we talk to founders, you know, Stuart, Kevin, and Rob, all former, you know, operators themselves, you know, have great experience founding, scaling, exiting, you know, operating at a high level in the past. And, you know, that that carries a lot of weight because, you know, you can add value very tangibly to, you know, the strategic direction of a company. You've been through those problems in the past, you've experienced those problems in the past. And you know, I shouldn't just mention those three partners, but but Jackie, who you mentioned, Peter, uh, Lindsay on our team as well, that, you know, they've been in this ecosystem for a long time. They really understand, you know, what founders want. They have great experience themselves. And I always say, I feel like I'm, I'm lucky as, as the junior person on the team to, to work alongside like the all-star cast that's around me. And I've just taken so much from them. And I think I think founders appreciate it too. I'm curious about your transition from basketball to early stage, specifically early stage tech investing. As somebody who I come from a background of, you know, more financial services, sell side research, not focused on the technology sector. So pretty new to looking at early stage tech businesses. I know you looked at podcasts and, you know, you tried to sort of prepare yourself as much as you could while you were while you were lighting it up overseas. But um curious when you got started, what was that kind of transition like for you? How did you try to acclimate to looking at early stage tech companies as quickly as possible so that when you were meeting those founders, you could have some sense of an idea, you know, what they were talking about on the other end. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it, I mean, to be completely honest, it was drinking from the firehose when I first started. You know, I think there's there's only there's only so far uh, there's only so much like reading tech crunch and, and listening to podcasts and, you know, diving deep into the tech world while you're in Estonia. There's only so far that can get you. And so I think uh, the, the toughest part for me, I think when I first started was, you know, just honing my investing lens. And I think like separating, you know, what's interesting versus not interesting, where I should be spending my time versus not spending my time. I think venture in general is throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. But it's especially the case when you're first getting started. And, and, and at the end of the day, it's a, it's a pattern recognition business too, right? Like the more reps you get analyzing companies, you know, getting familiar with different industries and sort of understanding founder dynamics and, and what's interesting there, 
like the <laughs> the better investor you're going to be. And the reality is like you just don't have that when you're you're, you're first starting. And and credit goes to you know Peter Christman on my team and the partners, everybody I was working with shoulder to shoulder every day to sort of show me the ropes and and get me the reps to where where now I feel like a completely changed person than definitely when I was in Estonia and the Netherlands. But but even even when I first started at CV, <laughs> I know that. For me, over the past year, I want to say every kind of SaaS company that I've spoken to or been on a founder call with, I'm relatively new to this, but I constantly am hearing them talk about APIs and how their SaaS solution you know, is built with or on top of APIs. And because of that, gone down a little bit of an API rabbit hole over the past few months, but it's kind of necessary when you're looking at modern software solutions, I think. I know this is an area of interest for you. But I'd love it if you could kind of walk us through, you know, in your mind, what is an API first company? Because it's obviously a differentiator from a traditional, you know, SaaS business that might use APIs. Yeah, definitely. No, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's it's a it's a burgeoning area. It's an area that's been around for a while, but I think there's still so many opportunities and and it's an area that's that's personally fascinating to me. And without getting too technical, uh, which yeah, let's I'm not technical myself, but. Uh, an API, it's, a, it's an application program interface. Uh, and essentially what APIs allow you to do is to connect different software systems. I sort of think about them as the bridge between software systems. And, it, and it's what allows them to communicate basically data from one software system to another software system. And, and sort of third-party APIs, what you're talking about in particular, the idea behind those is you, you can sort of plug them into existing software systems with just, a, with just a few lines of code. And, you know, that API will connect you to a service that the company provides that's oftentimes, you know, non-core, non-essential to the business or the product that's the purchaser of the product from an API-first company but is sort of critical to their operations and allows their product or service to exist. And so I'm sure, you know, to somebody who, where this is their, uh, you know, first exposure to API first companies that might not make it ton of sense, but I think like, I think examples are very illustrative. And I think the one, what I should point to, like, I think a relatively simple example is a company called Checker. And what they do is they allow any company to outsource background checks. So if you're Lyft, for example, and you need to incorporate background checks into your existing platform, you can just insert a few lines of code into whatever the onboarding process for your drivers is, and it'll automatically route you to Checker. Here's the information you need to plug in. They'll perform the background check. They'll send the relevant information back to Lyft through an API again, and they'll have that function of their product taken care of. Again, you know, something that's non-core to Lyft's business. They don't want to build this out from scratch, but super critical to what they do. And, and they're happy outsourcing it to a, you know, a quality third party like Checker. Have you guys, has CV invested in any API first companies or what really got you excited about the space in general? Was it hearing founders talk about how their solutions are built on top of APIs? Is that kind of where the genesis was or yeah. were there actually investments you looked at? Definitely. I, I think there was, there was one investment that we made that I think really made the power of API first companies stand out to me and that the company's OneRail. It's an Orlando-based company and essentially what they do is they allow any large enterprise scale company to outsource and very easily handle the last mile logistics operations of the shipments that they're making. So if you're Home Depot and you had locations all across the country, oftentimes you were dealing with like 
you know, 30 or 40 different last mile logistics providers. And what that required before OneRail was like individual logins, individual relationships with all those different uh, last mile logistics providers, depending on geography, depending on, you know, the speed of the delivery, depending on, you know, the size of the package that you were, that you were, uh, that you were shipping. And what OneRail does is it's, it's a very simple plug-in to your point of sale system, where if a customer makes a purchase, it automatically routes um, the shipping details to the relevant last mile logistics provider of the 30 or 40 that they might be dealing with. And then OneRail allows that shipment to be basically automatically carried out for them. So they don't need to even thinking about like the last mile logistics headaches that sort of bogged down their operations in the past. Are they a situation where like a lot of other API first companies, they can kind of achieve economies of scale where over time, the more and more they actually perform the task for different clients, they're getting better and better each time. And thereby that kind of even develops a moat almost from you know, second, third movers who might be trying to do the exact same thing. Is that, is that something you've seen with, with that company? And is that kind of, you know, representative of API first companies in general? Definitely. Yeah. I think there's like, there's two really powerful network effects that are sort of at work here. The first is, you know, what you were describing, which is, you know, as more people use the the product, as more shippers get on board, the product becomes better just through iterations. And then the second the second network effect is as you get more carriers on board, the actual last mile logistics providers themselves, you start to build out a broader network. You're able to fulfill more shipment instances. You're able to cover more geographies. That'll ultimately, you know, pull in more shippers, you know, the folks like Home Depot that I was talking about, which will sort of have like, has this push-pull push effect where, you know, shippers bring on more carriers, which brings on more shippers, which expands. And pretty soon, you know, you, you have like pretty unbelievable coverage and a pretty unbelievable ser- service for uh, for the shippers you're working with. And, you know, we're, we're already starting to see that happen. Do these companies, and maybe taking that one as an example, but one thing that I read, and I can't remember where, but it's really interesting to me, API-first companies have almost an advantage in hiring where they're solving a very specific problem. And employees who are joining those companies know that's the problem that is being solved. Whereas more broader sort of software companies can sometimes get bogged down in the mission. You know, they can sometimes get stretched too thin or the culture changes over time. The problem they're trying to solve changes over time. Do you think there is a cultural advantage you can have in an API company where everybody is sort of rowing the same direction, you know, the very specific use case and problem you're trying to solve? And that is sort of why people are coming there in the first place? Yeah, definitely. I think, again, you hit the nail on the head with that one. And I, I think like the other cultural advantage too, right, is like a lot of these API first companies are taking bottoms up go to market approaches. Like Twilio is a great example, another API first company that enables messaging and phone uh, phone. Uh, call capabilities. And, you know, they're super famous for their tagline, like ask your developer. Like at one point there was, there was that tagline all, all over billboards in the Bay area. And, you know, on top of the cultural advantages you were talking about where everybody's rowing in the same direction. I think that, you know, having a bottoms up approach and like being known as like one of the best tech brands, especially ecosystems like the Bay area has quickly compounding advantages as you start to recruit people, as you think about retaining people. Because the reality is like people want to work for the top brands that they see all over the place. People want to work for like the Googles and Facebooks and, and Twilio's and, and those sorts of brands. And like, I think that sort of 
as a as a byproduct of the go to market that a lot of these companies have, they they have that advantage. I think it's also fascinating how ubiquitous something like a Twilio is, something like a Stripe. I don't think consumers and just the average public understands how often they're interacting with these API first companies on a daily basis. Totally. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, when you think about like the tech stack of of companies that are being built today, like so much of of tech stacks today are composed of API first companies. And again, it's it's for good reason. Like the, it allows companies to outsource, you know, their non core capabilities, the aspects of the businesses that aren't true differentiators and allows them to focus on like, you know, what actually allows them to win and capture certain markets. But yeah, they are the type of company that, you know, despite, you know, building good brands do sit in the background of, you know, a lot of the products that we use every day today. Are there any use cases or forward looking, I guess, anything you're kind of excited about to see develop in the API first landscape? Yeah, you know, I think I'm thinking more opportunistically about potential opportunities in the future. But I do, I do have like a few heuristics for how I think about opportunities. Like a good example is the company Wheel, which allows, you know, essentially anyone to have access to virtual care capabilities through an API. And still like relatively early stage, I think they've only raised like $15 million in funding or something like that. But the reason that company is super interesting to me is because it's in a broader category that I think has huge huge, huge tailwinds, which is telemedicine. And everybody, I think everybody at this point, point knows that, that there's been massive, super rapid adoption of telemedicine, uh, you know, as a result of COVID. And so that's a good example of like, you know, my heuristic, which is in expanding categories, uh, you know, industries that are growing super, super rapidly. What's the infrastructure that can be built behind it that allows it to grow more quickly? Uh, Wheel is a great example. It essentially democratizes access to virtual care for anybody that wants to build that into their product. And so when I think about like categories, I'm excited about, you know, not only like companies that are sort of sitting at the surface of that, but what's the infrastructure that can help you know, build really incredible brands and really incredible companies within those categories. One of the things I love about API first companies, and that's been really interesting to, I'm in a class at Booth called Platform Competition, and we talk a lot about how important it is for up and coming companies to develop high switching costs, network effects, and all that stuff. But the switching cost part of API first is really, really interesting to me, how painful it would be for, you know, a Shopify to pull Stripe out of its out of its tech stack. I think that is really exciting about any potential API first investment. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the reason I'm so excited about the categories. It's like it's it's so core to products. And on top of like, you know, the the factors we talked about before that I think get any investor excited about a company, which are, you know, network effects, economies of scale, you know, companies becoming better as as more folks use their product. Like I, I think this switching cost component is is critical, and that you know gets at a heuristic that we use and that we talk a lot about internally, which is you know is this a nice to have versus a need to have type of product? Like of course you want need to have products, and you know when you're outsourcing a core capability of of your product to a third party, and that's going to be there for a long time, it would be hugely hugely painful to sort of rip that out at any point. I think that's sort of the recipe for an incredible company and, and, and it really de-risks a lot of these companies at the early stage if you know they're able to, to build the product and, and get some early traction. And zooming out a bit, I guess, APIs are 
or API-first companies fall within the category of modern suppliers, which, you know, to somebody who hasn't, you know, dug in a bit on APIs or maybe has never heard the term can be a bit confusing. I guess, how would you go about defining a modern supplier and, and how that is different from what we might think of as traditional suppliers? Totally. Well, well, all the credit goes to, to Blake Robbins at, at Ludlow Ventures and in Michigan, who sort of coined the term modern suppliers in, in one of his most recent posts. But but yeah, it's, it's, it's an area I love to think about. And, you know, when you think about traditional suppliers, Blake uses the example of GM, who had you know, 15,000 suppliers as they built their cars. And a lot of that was just outsourcing expertise to folks who can manufacture, you know, particular components, their cars. And, you know, they were outsourcing a lot more than than what people uh, sort of originally anticipate. Like really GM at the end of the day, like their expertise is sort of assembly, marketing, distributing a few different categories. But when you, you think about traditional suppliers, I think that's that's a great example uh, the other example I think about is, I'm sure a lot of people have read this essay, but like one of the first essays I ever wrote or that I ever, excuse me, read when I was uh, taking my first economics class when I was in high school was about all the suppliers and all the components that went into creating a, a Ticonderoga number two pencil, right? And so when you think about like how many different people, how many different companies, how many different materials and how many different processes were involved in putting together, you know, a piece of wood, some lead, an eraser, and some metal to create the different components of a, a pencil. It's it's pretty incredible, uh, and, and I think it was it was like a, a ten page essay detailing all the processes. And so that that really like opened my eyes to sort of the supplier world more generally. And you know, when you think about modern suppliers, of course, you know we're talking about the like internet infrastructure and, and software and how that apl- applies to software-based products. But it's the same idea that we were talking about before, really. It's it's how can you outsource sort of the non-core components of your products so you can focus on your true differentiators and what's going to allow you to win a market? It's crazy to think where we sit today. Obviously, starting a company is a Herculean task and it's challenging and there's so much uncertainty, risk, anxiety. But in terms of getting a company off the ground, I feel like it's never been easier than it is today with server costs being so much lower than what they used to be, you know, AWS kind of helping companies on that front, cloud computing, modern suppliers, ability to sort of build your product on top of APIs. It's crazy to think how much easier it is today to start a company than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, <laughs> I think... When you think about building a company 20 years ago and you think about the daunting task of you know building out a data center yourself which right. might have taken up you know <laughs> the entire all the proceeds from your you know two to three million dollar seed round back in the day and today you can sort of flip a switch have aws up and running even even on a smaller scale you can start a shopify store you know a bunch of my friends are, are doing that as sort of side hustles now and I, I think it's I think it's pretty incredible. I think it's obviously like a huge benefit for society. It allows folks to spin up more businesses, it allows businesses to iterate quicker. There's just less costs associated with entrepreneurship more generally. Of course, you know, it makes a lot of areas more competitive and there's 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 changing dynamics there and maybe moats that existed in some industries don't necessarily exist in the same way that they do now. But, you know, obviously overall, such a a net benefit for society and a net benefit for investors like us, because we have so many interesting companies to invest in nowadays, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I feel like everybody from our generation, especially Gen Z, in 10, 15 years from now, everybody, every young adult at least is going to have a side hustle, whether it's in the creator economy or whether it's an e-commerce brand. Don't you just feel like everybody is at some point going to have a side hustle? Yeah, exactly. And I, I love it. Like I, one of the, one of the businesses I started when I was overseas that I, that I didn't mention was, you know, I got super into music production when I was overseas. Like it was, I'd always been obsessed with music and and hip hop music in particular. And it's easier than ever to like learn how to make uh, beats and, and, and do music production and collaborate with friends and that sort of stuff. And so like my side hustle for a little bit overseas was, was creating music and, and trying to sell that that music online. I think I ended up only making like a hundred bucks or something like that. I wasn't super successful. I wasn't, uh, you know, the next Jay Dilla or, or Kanye West or anything like that. But <laughs> but it was it, when you thought about like what it actually took to do that, it was, you know, downloading some software, Ableton, which, you know, cost a couple hundred bucks. It was spinning up my own page on, I think, a website called beatstars.com. And it was just putting in some time and, and honing my craft and, and doing something that I loved at the end of the day. And who knows, maybe if I had spent some more time on it, you know, I would have been able to make that into a full-time side hustle. But it's, it's, it's the beauty of the internet today is like anybody can be a creator, right? First off, I am going to need some of those beats sent my way. <laughs> Either for the intro of this episode, for the outro of this episode, I now I'm going to have to follow up with you about that. <laughs> but yeah, and I think it's also, to your point, I mean, a guy like you, you're overseas, you're playing basketball, but the democratization of knowledge, especially when it comes to you know technology, investing, the fact that you were able to learn on the side while you had a full-time job in a different country and through podcasts, through newsletters... Part of me is I, we just weren't around for 20, 25 years ago. I don't know how people, aside from speaking to first party sources, if you were 25 years old and playing basketball overseas in 1995, how you could attain that amount of knowledge that you attained when you were doing it, right? Like, isn't that just crazy to think about sometimes? Yeah, it, it is. It's absolutely insane. Uh, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, I don't know if I would be on the path that I'm on today if, if it weren't for the, the democratization of, of knowledge that you talked about and the access to knowledge that I had at my fingertips. Yeah, well, I guess all I can say is I'm glad I wasn't a pro basketball player in the in the 90s versus you know late 2010s. <laughs> did you do any kind of investing when you were overseas? Did you start personally investing? I know an area that has you know caught your attention or that you're really interested in is niche asset classes and the current state of investing right now, which looks a lot different from even when I was in college learning about finance, learning about economics. So curious if you had any personal experience with those niche asset classes. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, my, my interest in sort of that category more generally definitely started earlier than, than when I was at Chicago Ventures. One of my, one of my deep dives, one of many deep dives when I was playing overseas was, you know, on, on crypto and, and investing in, in Bitcoin and sort of Ethereum and some other cryptocurrencies in the early days. And so, I, I won't I won't put it out there. Uh, actually, come to think of it, my my first uh, exposure to it was some of my teammates when I played overseas. And I remember one teammate, an Estonian in particular, he had you know friends who were super deep in the crypto world in Lithuania of all places, and he's like, hey, there's this 
there's all these currencies that like all my friends are making crazy money on. Of course, this was like in the run up in 2017. I think the bubble burst mid season uh, and that guy and a few of my other teammates were pretty sad, myself included. But that was kind of my first exposure to sort of alternative asset classes and, and slowly got into it overseas. You know, I think I was like relatively early on sort of the Robinhood trade, trading platforms and, you know, public market investing as well. But it's, it's definitely been a fascination of mine. And it's, it's interesting. You're seeing that more than, more than ever today, sort of the, the again, I feel like democratizes an over word, but that's exactly what happened, what's happening with, uh, with new asset classes today. It's hard to keep up. I mean, <laughs> NFTs, BlockFi, crypto are, what are you most interested in today in terms of, you know, where you're in, not to ask you about your personal investment portfolio, but um, what kind of areas interest you right now um, and do you think are kind of going to be really interesting to follow in the next few years? Yeah, it's it's all over. The, I mean, for me personally, it's it's all over the place. And my taxes this year are going to be an absolute nightmare because of it. But uh, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, some new areas that have popped up that I'm interested in are, I think, collectibles. I think, you know, that's something that's, sort of happened offline, I think a lot in the past, you know, like people have always been trading, uh, you know, sneakers and sports cards and that sort of thing, cars, watches, sort of you name it. But I think that's being brought online at a, a rate that's, that's, that's accelerating rapidly. When I think about like new areas, it's, I mean, it's hard not to talk about alternative asset classes without NFTs nowadays. Although I think when you think about like the, the Gartner adoption curve, it's probably sort of where crypto was in 2017 versus <laughs> sort of this, a steady state of any sort. We'll see how that plays out. And and I think for that reason, I'm kind of staying out of it personally now. But there is something enduring there, I think, in the long run. And there's there's a lot of others. I think what really fascinates me about the space is, you know, at the end of the day, like diversification is is one of the wonders of the world. It's like <laughs> it's it's one of the most sort of interesting concepts in finance, like you know, as you diversify across more asset classes, it, it dramatically brings down risk and over the long run can result in uh, much more predictable, uh, much higher returns. And so, you know, when you thought about diverse, diversification in the past for sort of your typical retail investor, it was like stocks, it was bonds, maybe you had some real estate. If you were really out there, maybe you like collected some trading cards or held some alternative assets. Nowadays, you know, as someone in their mid twenties, of course, I can have stocks, I can have bonds, but I can get exposure to hedge funds, strategy, hedge fund strategies that previously would have taken, you know, massive amounts to cap of capital to buy into. I can get exposure to real estate through platforms like Fundrise, which you know takes the administrative side of things completely off my hands, and I can sort of just go into the app and see which properties I'm invested in. And there's so many others, right? Like, and I think that's that's only going to continue, like. I've seen companies that are doing similar things for franchises, like franchises, I think like creating new McDonald's or, uh, or Wendy's uh, or that sort of thing has been like a huge investing opportunity for many folks, but you had to have super specialized knowledge and you had to have a ton of capital to get into it. But now, you know, similar to Fundrise, there are platforms that can do that for you. And I think there's just like so many examples of asset classes today that, that folks will get excited about and folks will get exposure in their portfolio. My travel basketball history just means that if I can open up a Culver's franchise, that uh, I need to pounce on that as fast as possible. Is that actually one of one of my favorite anecdotes about uh, franchises? Is 
I think one of the one of the top five player, top five richest players to ever play in the NBA is some guy you've never heard of before. It's like not LeBron James, not Shaquille O'Neal. It's some guy who like played for the Atlanta Hawks, I think, for a few years back in the late 70s or something like that. Took his NBA money, invested it across a, a broad portfolio of franchises in particular of all things, and has since compounded his money to a point where I think now he's worth close to a billion dollars or something like that. There's a great tweet storm about that that I read at some point. <laughs> That's unbelievable. I think on this topic of the NBA, it's amazing to me you're not involved at all at Top Shot. I mean, that's so up your alley. Yeah, that, I don't know. I think it's super exciting, and I think I will get involved at some point. That I just get hesitant about that because I still, going back to like the Gardner adoption curve, I'm seeing like this massive uptick of something that sort of just came <laughs> came on the market. And I've, I'm, I'm afraid of reliving my my crypto days in Estonia 2017, where I was I bought in like right before the biggest crash. And so maybe that's what's driving the hesitancy there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I think a lot of people look at NFTs and they say, I missed out on crypto seven years ago. And especially now, everybody's on Twitter talking about when they bought crypto in 2013 and how much it's worth. So I think partly NFTs, the, the buzz around it is driven by a lot of people who couldn't get involved in crypto, kind of slept on it a little bit. And they see this as the next sort of uh, new wave, potentially new gold rush. But I, I am curious about all of this. I mean, what do you think has caused a lot of this, I think, is driven by younger generations, Gen Z, millennials looking to diversify, looking, you know, we talked about side hustles, but in on investing even what do you think has caused such a enthusiasm around investing from this younger generation from our cohort and even younger yeah i think i think there's a few things that's sort of driving that i think the first is you know people nowadays i think want to have some sort of emotional attachment to their investments and you know packing mccormick and not boring i think had a great post about this uh and about sort of broader trends in this category and a huge part of it is is there's there's an emotional attachment there's almost like an entertainment value on top of sort of the returns you're you're getting and when people are sort of investing their money in different spots of course they want returns but like if they're going to be spending a lot of time on this they they want it to be you know in categories that they're actually interested in and excited about and so i think that's a huge component of it you know when i think about like other drivers i think covid had a lot to do with it right like I, I read a, a guy, a Bloomberg columnist called named Matt Levine, pretty religiously, uh, and he has a ton of insights. But one of his insights about you know what drove sort of the growth of retail investing during COVID is what he terms the board markets hypothesis, which is when COVID first hit, people were sitting at home, sports were no longer on TV, you weren't spending any more any money, right? Because you weren't going out to restaurants or, or bars or uh, you know, some of the in-person activities that you were excited about pre-COVID and suddenly you were flushed with cash. You had a ton of time on your hands. You know, if you're into sports betting or something like that, you couldn't do that anymore. So everybody's like, well, why don't I, you know, mess around with the stock market? I think, again, a lot of it had to do with, you know, the entertainment value of, of putting some money and seeing it go up. And I think that's part of what's driving it now. Of course, you know, I do think this this trend is more enduring than a little bit of entertainment value during COVID, but I think that's at least what got a lot of people into it initially. I think that's make, that makes total sense. That's a great point. And I think the technology was there, the platforms were there, they've been built up over the past years, that it was a perfect confluence of events almost. And I do agree. I think 
the enduring nature of it, there is a dopamine associated with watching an investment go up and people, there is a psychological effect that, that can really become embedded in somebody and they want to sort of continue to keep going back to the well, especially if it's seen as a little bit less of a risky endeavor than just betting on a certain amount on a sports game where you have no real insight into the outcome. There's a lot more I think that you can do today to learn about these different niche asset classes to get involved and to, again, have an emotional attachment that I, I agree, I think it will endure past past the pandemic. But I'd love to touch on a favorite topic of both of ours with the time we have left and Chicago. You know, we, we talked about it from the outset, but I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on the state of the Chicago early stage investment landscape, you know, how it recovered from COVID and where you think we are today. Yeah, you know, I think first in terms of funding activity, I don't think if you asked anybody a year ago that we'd be where we're at now, you know, given COVID had just hit and, you know, Sequoia had just released their Black Swan memo and everybody thought, you know, uh, here comes the recession that we've all been sort of in the back of our minds anticipating since the last one in 2008. But <laughs> clearly that hasn't turned out to be the case. And it's, it's pretty incredible. And I, I wrote a post back in September on sort of the state of early stage financing in Chicago. And it was pretty clear that, you know, financing activity was uh, on par with prior years. I think 2019 was a bumper crop year in a lot of ways. Like it was, it was you know, the early stage ecosystem had sort of grown at a steady rate and 2019 was sort of above and beyond any any year prior. But, you know, even with COVID and sort of the, the break that happened for uh, a few months, Funding activity was still super high at the time. I, I still have yet to, to refresh the data on Chicago in particular, but the takeaway from a macro perspective in the seed stage ecosystem is, you know, funding activity is still, you know, as strong as it's been in, in prior years. I, I think there's been a, a slight dip and if anything, sort of a, a flight to quality in a lot of ways, which might have bumped up prices and sort of the fixed number of deals that, that have gotten done. But but the takeaway and sort of the, I think, unpredictable insight uh, a year ago is that, you know, we're feeling as busy as ever. The, the, the ecosystem here in the Midwest and elsewhere is as busy as ever and, and doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. And you're somebody that spent pre-COVID a good amount of time immersed in the ecosystem and, and talking to different investors here and getting out and meeting founders. How would you describe the ecosystem here? And you know, in your conversations with investors who look across the country or who are from different areas, different hubs, do you think there's anything that differentiates this ecosystem here in Chicago and maybe the Midwest at large? Yeah, I think, again, as being a Chicagoan, I think the, the early stage ecosystem here reflects a lot of the, the values of, of Midwesterners more more generally. Of course, like hardworking is, is what everybody points to. But I think you know what's less obvious. I think a lot, of, for, especially for a lot of coastal investors, uh, is that it's a it's a super collaborative community. I've I've gotten to know just about all the other analysts and associates, uh, and many of the partners and other firms here in Chicago. And you know we're always co-investing together. We're always talking about what we're seeing. We're always you know sharing deal flow. Uh, <laughs> I was pretty close to moving in with. Uh, uh, the associate at, at Light Bank here in Chicago, if that's any indicator of sort of how collaborative the community is. Unfortunately, that our, our plans had to change at the last minute because of his living situation. But, but that's what I love about it, right? Is is you know when you 
especially as a junior investor, when you compare it to the experience of, of being, you know, an analyst or associate in, in the Bay Area, it, it feels hyper competitive. It feels like everybody's chasing the, the same few deals and it feels more transactional where I, I haven't felt that's the case here in Chicago at all. That's amazing. You guys were considering uh, sharing a place. I uh, got to imagine those would be some amazing conversations around a dinner table, just shopping notes and uh, co-investing maybe every once in a while. Um, exactly. We probably would have had to keep the door closed during pipeline meeting, <laughs> but outside of that, it was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty excited about it. I think it's 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 just also too. I don't know. Maybe the last month, month and a half, it feels like there's been just a lot of interesting and exciting developments here. You know, you, you have Cameo becoming a unicorn. You have Talk getting acquired. Are there any other developments here that have really kind of excited you, or think that are a strong showing of the ecosystem? Besides, obviously, your guys' awesome fundraise number three. Again, appreciate that. Yeah, I think. Well, when I think about like signs that the ecosystem is maturing and and why you know. I'm really excited about Chicago and I'm still sort of doubling down on Chicago, even as, you know, Miami or Austin might be getting the most attention on, on tech Twitter. I kind of go back to a, a tweet that actually Bill Gurley of, of Benchmark had where he, he said, the only signs that really matter for whether an ecosystem is booming or whether an ecosystem is developing, whether it'll produce, you know, good outcomes in the future is exits, right? Is signs of success from prior companies. And when you think about, you know, how that sort of drives the flywheel within an ecosystem, an exit obviously is like very beneficial for the investors, very beneficial for the founders. But when you think about like all the people outside of that who are benefited, it's it's early employees and those employees can go start their own companies and or become angel investors. It brings more tech money, or I should say, it brings more money to the tech ecosystem in the form of angel investment, in the form of, you know, more firms drawing their attention to certain geographies. And that'll cause more companies to spin up, which will have their own successes. And you start to get like the flywheel really spinning within certain geographies. I think when you think about Chicago in particular, and this is actually sort of preempting a, another post that I'm hoping to put out in the next couple of weeks here about actually titled, you know, which ecosystem flywheels are spinning the fastest. Chicago uh, was second on that list in terms of ecosystems outside of uh, sort of the West Coast and the Northeast in particular of, you know, markets that had exits where the flywheel was sort of fa- spinning the fastest. And so... Uh, you know, Cameo is a more recent example. We're obviously excited about that one because it's in our portfolio. I hear Talk a few weeks back exiting for $400 million. Clear Cover just a few days ago, raising a $200 million round. And hopefully that leads to a successful outcome there. It's certainly looking like it. And I feel like that news is just becoming more and more common. And, and that only benefits the ecosystem. I think one question that I try to um, address with junior VCs especially because a lot of times you are sort of the first person that a founder might be speaking to or pitching to. And something that I know a lot of people wonder is what is at Chicago Ventures, what is your guys' due diligence process look like? And curious if you've noticed a acceleration in, in time that you have to do due diligence since you started in venture. Certainly. Yeah. I think it's it's important to note here too, right? Like I, I only had four months in a venture role before COVID hit and uh, <laughs> our world sort of changed. But, uh, you know, even with sort of the limited experience prior to COVID, 
uh, I've totally, totally noticed uh, an acceleration of, of due diligence processes and, and just how fast things are moving, particularly the most exciting stuff. And and obviously the reason for that is, you know, everything's happening through Zoom. The founder no longer has to fly out to Sand Hill Road to, to, to go up and down the street having meetings with a bunch of firms over the course of the week. Then they're coming out to Chicago. Then they're going somewhere else. You know, you can just hop on a Zoom call and knock out eight meetings in one day. Uh, <laughs> and... I, I think that's great. I think it's, you know, it's, it's sort of playing into our thesis that companies can be started anywhere, get funded by anyone, but it does, uh, you know, make our sort of internal capacities and our diligence processes a little more strange because we do have to move faster, I think, than we ever have in the past. But so far, I feel like we're adjusting. And, and the nice part about a firm like ours and sort of our strategy is, you know, we pick our spots. Um, and, you know, if we don't feel comfortable with, uh, you know, a shotgun marriage <laughs> over Zoom for what could be, you know, a, a decade plus relationship, then, then we can just move on to the next one. Yeah, I really am curious to see what is going to happen in a year from now and how the nature of first meetings at least will change or if they change at all. There is such an efficiency to being able to do a ton of first meetings over Zoom. I think ultimately everybody wants to get that in-person connection and build the relationship in that way. But I, I'm I'm very curious to see how this changes. Steven, this has been awesome. I would love though, before we finish up, I spent four years in New York after college, moved back to Chicago during COVID, and I just haven't gotten my restaurant game down pat yet. I don't have any favorite spots yet. I have the places I grew up with, the places I love in college, but just curious, any places, any restaurants, call outs that you want to give? Yeah, I think the the obvious one is is Lumonati's, but I know you know that one, so maybe I'll go with uh, <laughs> which is a controversial take, right? In Chicago, you know, it's it's a it's a heated discussion anytime you're talking to Chicago about their pizza. But I'll I'll throw in a plug for one of my favorite sort of hole in the wall restaurants. You know, the, the part that I didn't mention actually during my story is I had I had a chance to go backpacking for a little while in between my time overseas and my time joining Chicago Ventures before I really kicked off the diligence process, which is a story in and of itself. But Next podcast, time. next podcast for <laughs> sure. Podcast. But I, I spent some time in, in Thailand and became absolutely obsessed with Thai food, which is now I, I think I could have Thai food for every single meal and my go-to spot for sort of like, you know, your quick 10, 10 to $15 curry is a, is a place called Silver Spoon Thai in Streeterville. And it's great. It's, it's in the basement of, of some place like the people who, who run the restaurant are from Thailand originally. And, you know, I know I can I can call up that place and get some unbelievable, uh, you know, masaman curry or, or green curry in, in about 10 or 15 minutes. So that's my go to. <laughs> that's awesome. I'll add that to the list. Any great resources that you love to stay on top of, especially in your last year and a half Have you, you know, as you've gotten new to venture and the longer you've spent sort of doing the job, any resources that you really love, podcasts, newsletters? Yeah, I, I always refer somebody to sort of my, I, I always refer anybody who asks that question to, to one resource in particular. And it is a website uh, called sandhill.io, uh, named after the road in the Silicon Valley. And it's started by one of my good friends, Ali at Equal Ventures. And essentially what it does is it aggregates blog posts from 300 different resources like mediums, substacks, you name it, and aggregates on a daily basis. So the best thought pieces, you know, theses, big funding announcements, et cetera. And I know I could keep up with all those blogs individually, but having that aggregated in one place and like all of my favorite writers in one place 
uh, is pretty useful. And if, I think if you read a couple of posts from that every day, you, you get the lay of the land in the venture world pretty quickly. That's an awesome one. I love Sandhill and I completely agree. I'd love to have him on the podcast and just ask him how he went about building that because I certainly am a benefit of it and uh, just want to shake his hand for the for the good work he's doing. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Steven, thank you so much for coming on Chicago Capital. If people want to follow you or find you, where can they go? Yeah, if people want to follow me, uh, my Twitter handle is sdcook25 uh, on Twitter and the, the Substack where I release pieces every so often is uh, Through the Wire, a uh, little Kanye reference there um, for the folks who know. Uh, but I was meaning to ask along. you that. I was going to ask you that. I was, <laughs> I, I, I was waiting for you to say it, and I was like, I really hope that's a Kanye reference. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Got to represent for Kanye. All right, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. We can't wait to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, Matt. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.